Morning. Okay, um, so first of all, if you've read the weekly sheet and you're expecting Dave Webster, I'm obviously not Dave Webster. Uh, he's not very well today, so I've uh, offered to stand in at the last minute for him. Um, also, regards the T-shirt, uh, a few months ago, Dave Carter wore a T-shirt that said, Son of a Preacher Man. I thought, okay, we're playing that game, are we, preaching T-shirts? And um, for my 50th birthday, some really good friends of mine in Maystone, Nick and Nicky, bought me this, and I've been waiting to premiere it. So, uh, for those of you at home listening on the iPod, I am the Sermonator. Um, okay, so um, I need you to turn up Ezekiel chapter 1 in your Bibles, please. Okay, um, so there's a couple of things I just want to give as a caveat before we read. Um, the first one is, if you're here and you're part of the prayer team, I would dearly uh, love to ask you and invite you to come over here at the end of the service, because I know we're going to do some serious business today with some folk who want to meet with God in a special way. Um, secondly, if you're a gentleman here today, uh, I really need you to pay a special attention to the message. Okay? Um, if you don't from the beginning, you'll miss the profundity and the seriousness of what I'm going to share. And thirdly, um, you might need a phone or something like that to take some notes because quite often preachers in application kind of tell you, here's what you should do. But today I have six questions that I want you to go away and ask yourself. So it'd be really good if you could record those in some way. Um, My heart as a teacher is to be apostolically shaped. And what I mean by that is um, the teaching gift should be shaped by this principle of the invasion of the kingdom of God and its king into this realm. Um, and one of the things I do know is, you know, Pete's been talking a lot about spiritual warfare lately. And as a pastor teacher, one of the tensions I know that all of us face in our lives is it's really difficult to fight on two fronts. Yeah, that's how the Nazis lost World War II. They tried to fight on two fronts. And it's really hard to fight for the kingdom if you're fighting for your marriage, your finances, your teenage kids, all that kind of stuff. And so whenever I uh, bring God's word, I'm always trying to find something that will bring strength, add strength to you, so you can deal with that stuff, so you can be singly focused on the thing that really matters, which is him and his kingdom. Is that good? Okay, cool. So that's where we're kind of going today. Um, and, And the reason I say that is, is generally I really believe Christians tend to be okay and have faith when things are going well. But when things are not going well... It can be an entirely different story in terms of what we expect from God and what we want for him. And that's why we're going to drop into this story here. So I'm going to read for you from Ezekiel 1. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kiba River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of Babylon. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. Well, immediately that has us asking all sorts of questions. Like, who is this guy, Ezekiel? And what does it mean he's a priest? And if this is a Jewish book we're reading, which is what the Old Testament essentially is, why is he in a place called Babylon? And why is he sitting amongst a bunch of people called the exiles? All sorts of questions. And we read on, and it goes like this. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, and an immense cloud with flashing light surrounded by brilliant light. And there the center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. So here's a guy telling you, I saw something that looked like a man, except everything about it is nothing like a man. 
I just want to put that out there. Um, and it goes on. Their faces look like this. Each one had four. The face of a man. And on the right side, each had the face of a lion. On the left, the face of an ox. And also had the face of an eagle. Such was their faces. Their wings were spread out and upwards. Each had two wings. One touching the wing of another creature on either side. And the two wings covered its body. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And it causes all kinds of questions. Like this one. What? (laughs) Like, if that was read in the public sphere, it would be followed with these words. And this, children, is why we don't take drugs. (laughs) What on earth is going on here? Well, basically, this guy is having such an incredible revelation at an encounter with God. He is struggling. He's like a drowning man grasping at straws, straws, trying to find words to put this thing into a written form so other people perhaps could grasp it and understand it. And the problem is, we can get so overwhelmed with the vision, a bit like somebody who steps into a lift wearing Link's aftershave, it's so overpowering, you kind of lose reality. And, and what I want you to understand is this vision has a context. We can get so overwhelmed trying to interpret, like, what do the wings mean? And it goes on and it talks about these wheels, and these wheels have high and mighty rims. It looks like he's been watching an episode of Pimp My Ride, you know, some big chrome 22s. I mean, what is going on? Well, you know, the Hebrew rules of interpretation, because this is a Hebrew book, always work like this. Go for the plain meaning before you get sucked into the symbolism. And so we should always be asking, what is the story behind the story? And there is a story behind this story, and it begins 800 years earlier in a place called Canaan. Joshua and the people of Israel have kind of come out of the desert. They've crossed the Jordan, and they have this mandate from God to take the land and possess it. And part of that possessing means that they have to drive out and destroy the Canaanites. Now, one of my favorite atheists on planet Earth is... um, Oh, there we go. Uh, One of my favorite atheists on planet Earth is a guy called Richard Dawkins. And he takes stories like that. God driving out and destroying the Canaanites through the Israelites as a kind of, well, what a horrible God you believe in. But the problem is his speciality is zoology, not theology. And that means he doesn't understand biblical context. Here's some things I want to say to you. First of all, let's see if this will change on for me. We're almost there. Um, Is that the Canaanites were incredibly bad people. Like, they're the kind of people you would not want moving in next door. Okay? They worshipped pagan, demonic idols that were worshipped by sacrificing your children. That changes the story a bit, doesn't it? And so there's this incredible thing that happens where there's this kind of toxic mix of chemicals. We read in the summary passages of Joshua how the people come into the land, but they do not fully drive out the Canaanites. In fact, they allow some of them to settle amongst them. Not only that, they then start utilizing some of these Canaanites as slaves and servants. I mean, that's just terrible on one hand. But on the other hand, we're told that in the generation after Joshua, there was a generation who grew up who neither knew God nor his ways. Put those things together and you have the biblical equivalent of Hiroshima. They lose the knowledge of God and they are infiltrated by the most 
awful and disgusting pagan sacrificial religion. And that toxic mix is going to shape their history for the next 820 years. Uh, There's a point that happens where the people suddenly think, do you know what, it'd be a really good idea if we had a king, because all the nations that we've ever fought in battle, they had a king. So what we need is a king. Can we have a king, God? And God goes, sir, you really don't want a king, because I am your king. No, 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 we really want a king. And so God actually gives them what they pray for. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? Now, we have a saying in the Henley household, and it goes like this, pray and duck. I remember years and years and years ago, the start of Christian ministry, and I prayed once, Lord, give me humility. Oh, that was a dumb prayer. (laughs) Like, just be humble. Don't ask him to humble you. It will be a painful experience, I promise you. It's like people who say, Lord, make me patient. No, don't do that. Because he's going to give you plenty of opportunity to work out what being patient looks like. So here's the deal. There's this monarchy that starts. It's called the United Monarchy. You get Saul, who starts well and ends badly. You get David, who starts well and ends well. A little bit of a blip in the middle, you know, adultery, murder, deceit, that kind of stuff. And then the throne passes on to his son, a guy called Solomon, who starts incredibly well. Because, why? Well, instead of asking for power and riches, he asks for wisdom, yeah. And he writes our wisdom books. One of those wisdoms books has the most famous proverb in the ancient world. And it goes like this. A nagging wife is like a dripping tap. Now, before you think I'm making a sexist comment here by just picking on that text, there's a reason I'm picking on it. And here it is. He married six to seven hundred women. And then on top of that had three hundred concubines. And all of these women that he married were foreigners. And they had foreign gods, and they wanted to worship those foreign gods, and so they gave him a bit of this. It's interesting, isn't it? And then he writes a proverb that says, you know what? Choose wisely. That's the point of the proverb, just in case you haven't got it. Choose wisely. But he didn't choose wisely, and at the start of his kingdom, he's using his heart and his spirit, and he's leading from wisdom. And by the end of his rule, he's thinking with his zipper. Sorry, just saying it as it is. And to appease these women, he starts building places of worship on the Mount of Olives where they sacrifice children. So God says, okay, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of your hands. I'm going to tear it in pieces and let's see how that goes. And so the ten tribes of Israel are formed in the north and the two tribes that make up Judah are formed in the south. And then you go, kind of get this history roll out where all of the kings of Israel are just totally despicable and evil and each one is worse than the guy who goes before. And in Judah, things aren't much better. There's a couple of good guys in there, people like Josiah and Hezekiah who kind of have spiritual reforms in the country. They do really cool things like they find religious high places to the Canaanite gods and then build toilets over them. You've got to love the Hebrew mindset. It is so rooted in concrete thinking. Like, you don't have to explain that, do you? Here is what I think of your gods. But there's this problem. Both nations are infected with the same thing. Idolatry and injustice. And they always go together. Here's why. When you worship foreign gods, no other foreign god has human beings made in the image of God. 
And when you start worshipping other gods, you separate the inherent value and worth and dignity of human beings from the God who created them. And that means you can do whatever you want with them. And that's what they did. And so God rocks up in the form of the prophets and he says things like this in Jeremiah 50, 17. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First the king of Assyria devoured him and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has gnawed on his bones. Wow. Pretty hardcore, isn't it? And that's what happened. First this huge nation called Assyria rise up and they destroy Israel and scatter the ten tribes never to be heard of again. And then the Babylonians, under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, besieged Jerusalem three times. And in the final besieging, they destroy the city. It was one of these sieges, it's actually the second siege, that Ezekiel, a priest, is taken captive to Babylon. Here's what I want you to know. Ezekiel's world was very predictable. See, a priest's job then was not like a church leader's job now. You know, church leaders now, we look to people who motivate us and inspire us. And maybe if we're lucky, you know, they might come around and have a cup of tea with us and make us feel a bit happier. Yeah. In those days, a priest had one job. He was the master of regulations. Leviticus 6.9. Give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations. And it says it over 20 times. Sorry. Almost lost my bricks then. We will get to those in a minute in case you're wondering. And so priests were master of the regulations. They had to know every detail of the Torah and how to interpret it and how to fulfill it and how to practice it. And their kind of heads work like this. Well, you know, if this happens, then this is what God expects. And if you've done this, then we have this regulation. And if you do this regulation, then God's satisfied. He'll forgive you. You know, everything's good. Everything's cool. Very predictable. This is how God works. So you can imagine the queue in front of the priest. Priest says, have you sinned? Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, do you want to make it right with God? Uh, yeah, I do, please. Uh, was it intentional or unintentional? Uh, it was an unintentional sin. Okay, was anyone harmed? Uh, no, I didn't harm anyone. Okay, unintentional sin, no one was harmed. Okay, we need a female goat. Off you go. And he's going to get his sacrifice. Next person comes up. Uh, you've sinned? Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, do you want to make this right with God? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Was it intentional sin or unintentional sin? Oh, it was unintentional sin. Uh, uh, what did you do? Uh, well, I, I touched something that was ceremonially unclean. May I ask what? I'd really rather not go there. Okay, so um, what we need is a female lamb or a goat. I'm really sorry. I'm like skint this week. I haven't been paid. Oh, okay, well, the regulations say if you're a bit skint, you can have two pigeons or two doves and we just... No, no, I'm like really skin. Like I've just given the kids their pocket money. Okay, well in that case, we just need a tenth of an eper of flour and you can just burn that and God will be satisfied. You're forgiven. Everything's okay. That's how the world of the priests operated. And so Ezekiel's a company man. He knows the rules. You know, if, if you're in trouble and, and you've got stuff going on with the law, you want like the kind of best lawyer, don't you? You know, if you go to a lawyer's office and they go, ooh, yeah, that's a tricky one. Yeah, I've not come across that before. Um, can you give me a couple of days? I'm going to just do some research on... Like, you don't want to employ that guy, do you? But if you walk into a lawyer's office and he goes, Oh, yeah, let's just have a look at this. Whoa, there goes my break. Um, let's just have a look at this. Uh, oh, yeah, Smith yeah, versus Jones, 2014. Yeah, there was a legal ruling here which set a precedent, and that precedent is now enshrined in law. So, yeah, if we do this, do this, bang, you'll win this case. And you're like, great, that's wonderful. Thank you very much. I like that. That's, oh, there's me other brick. Um, and that's how it kind of went in the priest's world. Everything 
was really, really predictable. God operated predictably. If you do this plus this, God will do this. If you've, if you've offended here, this is the way back. The regulations are clear. We know how God works. Don't panic. We've got this thing down. It's all covered. Don't worry. God's predictable. Now that's a whole lot of information I've just given you, and I want to warn you, do not process that in your brain. I want you to step outside of the text for a moment and switch on your heart. And step back into the story, because what's going to happen to Ezekiel is this. God is going to use him to prophesy the final siege of Jerusalem. He does it using this kind of guerrilla art preaching style, where he takes food and cooks it over poo. Because that's the reality of siege warfare. You can't go out of the city to get wood, so you burn anything you can. But the problem is cooking with poo makes you unclean. And then he does other strange things, like he chops his hair, and then he's told to kind of throw it to the wind to kind of preach to the people about how God's going to scatter the people of Judah. And then God gives him this horrific vision of idolatry right home in the temple where Yahweh is meant to be worshipped. And the priests there are worshipping demonic images out front of the house, but also in the little antechambers and storerooms around the side. And then Ezekiel gets this vision, which probably is a consequence of that, of the glory of God packing its suitcase and leaving the temple. Now you need to understand how big a deal that was. Jerusalem and the temple was the place where God put his name. And then finally, Ezekiel's the one who is the one who receives the news when Jerusalem is finally destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the temple is torn to pieces. I want you to understand, when Ezekiel was taken captive, he lived in a world where God was very predictable. And we're told that in that same siege where Ezekiel was taken captive... Nebuchadnezzar clears the temple out of all its gold articles. Now I just want you to picture this for a moment. Ezekiel knows the rules. He's a regulation guy. He knows how it works. He's in the queue waiting to have his bronze handcuffs, we call them fetters, fitted. And into the temple area marches Nebuchadnezzar with a whole load of armed guards. Covered in armour, swords, shields, looking aggressive, mean and nasty. They know the temple is where the money is. And Ezekiel has this cool idea. Because he's a man of the regulations. He has seen Indiana Jones in the last crusade. <laughs> and he knows only the penitent man will pass. Hey, Mr. Nezar, you are to the gold. If you go right in the back, like right back as far as you go in the temple, it's called the Holy of Holies, that's where the really cool stuff is knowing full well that his regulations say if anyone except the high priest goes in there. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes, right boys, in here. He's waiting for the heads to roll out. There's silence for a bit. And then, and out walks Nebuchadnezzar with all the stuff of value. And he's still got his head on his shoulders. 
Ezekiel's God may have been really predictable, but right now, everything is out of control. And that brings us back to our first few verses with Ezekiel sat by a river in Babylon. You see, here's Ezekiel. He's a captive. He's completed five years of what is going to be a 70-year stretch in captivity. He's in Babylon, the most ungodly city on planet Earth. So much so it's used as a type in Revelation when it talks about everything that stands against God, the great whore Babylon. And then what we get is that this city is ruled by the world's worst tyrant, a guy called Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel's world that day is a world of loss. What kind of loss? Well, you need to understand Babylonian practice. What happened when they captured a city? Well, firstly, anyone under the age of eight, they're just slaughtered because they're a waste of space. You've just got to feed them, but they don't produce anything. They can't work, can't do anything. Now, what we know is that Ezekiel was married because later on his wife dies in Babylon. So it's entirely likely he lost his kids. He's marched 800 miles across the desert by the Babylonian army, who at this point have a common practice with every other ancient army, including the Egyptians and the Persians, which is when you capture a woman in warfare, she is not a human being, she's not a person, she is property. So it's highly likely his wife had been violated. Then you add to that, he's lost his home city. Not just any old home city. This is the city where God has placed his name. This is Jerusalem. He's lost his home. He's now in Babylon. His home's over there, 800 miles away. He's lost his temple. He can't worship God here because his temple is over there. He's actually lost his God as well because the place God inhabits is the temple, not Babylon. He's lost his position in the community because when you're a priest but you have no temple, who needs a priest? He's actually lost his job, the thing that pays his salary because you only get paid if you're over there. And he's lost his purpose. Now would you agree with me that's a pretty bad day? It is, isn't it? It gets worse. You see, here's the question. What did the Babylonians do to 25-year-old men when they captured them? Well, they wanted to either use their muscle or they wanted to use their education, training, or wisdom in their royal courts. But of course, they didn't want you reproducing after your gene pool. So what they would do is, they would give you what we call the special day out at the vets. Or to use the medical term, castration. But the Babylonians had a really interesting way of doing it. And what they would do is, they would take two bricks like this and go... Told you you wanted to listen, boys. But to add insult to injury, if you were part of the priestly caste, they would make you serve as a slave in the temple of one of their principal gods. Gods like Ishtar, the goddess of sex and war. She's the Ashtart that we read about in Canaan. And gods like Marduk, who's a fertility god, who is also known by the name Baal in Canaan. So here's a priest of Yahweh in Babylon, and he will be forced to serve in those temples. That means we have a priest here who's lost everything in his universe. He's just been defiled by association with these idols. And he's also been defiled by, well, let's call it surgery, but it isn't really. And for Ezekiel, in that moment, it's what we call game over. 
Ezekiel's world could not have got any smaller. If ever there was a human being on the face of the planet who had no right or expectation to encounter God, it was Ezekiel. That's the context of the vision. Do you see where I'm going with this? You see, everything looked like it was in free fall. Everything looked like it was in ruins. Everything looked like it was completely demolished. And then the God of the universe turns up in his own personal Pope-mobile. So this Pope-mobile has... 22-inch chrome rim, you know, rims with eyes on them and weird angels and wow. This is one of the singularly great heavenly invasions in all of biblical history. And what he thought was game over was actually, new balls please. I'm thinking about tennis. (laughs) And he then has this series of encounters that sees him prophesying to the dead and the scattered bones of Israel. They're going to come together. They're going to be covered with flesh and skin and the breath of God's going to fill them. And they're going to become a mighty army. Hearts of stone are going to be turned into hearts of flesh that are going to be given a new spirit. God's going to create a new temple and the spirit The spirit is going to flow out of it on the east side. That's hugely hugely symbolic. If you travel east from the temple in Jerusalem, you go over the Mount of Olives and into the Dead Sea. And that river brings life wherever it goes. It's a great picture. But here's the funny thing. That third temple isn't a temple. It's us. And the interesting thing is, the further that river of the spirit gets from religious buildings, the deeper and stronger and more powerful and more purifying it becomes. Do you understand your place in the universe today? This is who we are. That's the heart of this mind-bending encounter. So I want to give you some takeaways. I don't know, can we get the screen up again, please? Ah, there we go. Okay, I want to give you some takeaways, but there's some questions wrapped up in this, okay? I'm going to try and do this in a couple of minutes. So, number one, God sometimes has to demolish the regulations and self-imposed limits on how he works. And in Ezekiel's world, God only worked in a certain way, and God blows that misconception out of the water. So here's a question. Have you drawn lines around God that have excluded where you are now? Have you said, I'm just a, I'm just a mum. I'm just a minion in the shop. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a guy who fiddles on computers. I'm just a guy who drives for a living. Have you drawn lines and said, God works everywhere else, but not here? Secondly, it's really interesting. God doesn't explain how this encounter could be possible theologically. He just shows up in power. I want you to get this. Here's Ezekiel sitting in Ishtar's backyard and he experiences God in a way that surpasses anything he ever experienced in Jerusalem. And in doing so, God breaks the boundary of Scripture itself. 
Ha. So here's question two. Where in the world does God need to turn your theology of him on its head? Okay, point number three. Evidently, God is just as present in Babylon as he is in Jerusalem. Which is great news when our personal world has disintegrated or is in ruins or has suffered defeat or loss. But there is a question um, that goes with that, and it's this. What is your Babylon right now? What is the place where you need to be surprised by hope? Number four. In the face of great suffering, God loves to bypass our mind and minister directly to us in our spirit. So much that we don't need an explanation, we actually need an encounter. And so my fourth question is this. When was the last time you met God? And I'm not talking about, oh yeah, God's here in a sort of, mm, I think, yeah, oh yeah, I think he's here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mean like that. I mean, when was the last time you met him in a paradigm-busting, life-altering, heavenly incursion? Because that's what we're about. And if it was too long ago, here's the great invitation of Scripture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That verse was not written to non-Christians. It was written to a church. Number five. Disasters are not meant to destroy us. They're an invitation and a vehicle to experience a dimension of God we have not known before. So here's a question for you. Oh, sorry, I've gone too far now. Have your encounters become too predictable? Is it always the same old, same old when you meet God? And finally, in Ezekiel's experience, the religion that supported Yahweh was burned to the ground when the temple was destroyed. Do you understand that? It was entirely temple-based system, and it was devastated. And the funny thing is, God miraculously survived. You hear people freaking out sometimes. If, if they put that film in the cinema, it'll be terrible. This will be terrible for Christianity. Really? Really? Like, honestly, you think God's not big enough to cope with a blasphemous film? Or some atheist on TV who's like giving it that? No, he's much bigger than that. But the question I have is this. Is your God big enough to survive your thumbnail sketch of him being torched? Like, how big is your God? Because sometimes I don't think we paint him big enough. That is what I want to share with you. And here's the offer I want to make. Um, I would love for us to take a moment collectively to pray in a second, but I want to say to you, if you are hungry for God, we have a great bunch of people called the prayer team who love to pray for people. And this morning, if you're on the prayer team, I want to suggest this to you. We're not doing shopping list prayers. Can you pray for this? Can you pray for that? Today, I want to open prayer up for 
I am desperate to meet the God of the whirlwind. And that's what we'd love to pray for. So let's stand. God, I just want to thank you that you have this awesome ability to survive the very religion which carried you being burned to the ground. That you're so big, you're so huge. That you are so not bound by the rules that you can even turn up and break your own theology and turn up in a place you shouldn't have been to a man who shouldn't have experienced you at a time when he was at the lowest ebb in his life. And we can honestly say collectively as a body, we're hungry for you, God. We want more of you. We know, we read passages like this about the whirlwind, about freaky-faced angels and wheels that have eyes on and all that kind of stuff and thrones made of lapis lazuli and voices that sound like the tumult of an army and rivers roaring. And we say, God, we know there is more and we want to see it. We want to experience it in our lifetime. And I want to ask, would you start knocking heavily on our, on our lives, the door of our lives? Would you bang those doors and say, here I am, I'm waiting to come in, I'm waiting to meet you like this, will you open the door? God, would you take the initiative? And God, would you please meet us in a way that we are hungry to? And we just ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here's what I want to suggest. If you are part of the prayer team, can I really encourage you to stay around and pray for folks today? And if you really need to meet God, come over here and those guys would love to pray for you. Thanks very much.